Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I don't know if you guys saw the headline in January. I think it was in USA Today. It just said this. Florida pastor flees woman's apartment naked. Well, when I saw that headline, of course, that as a pastor, that caught my attention. I had to dig into the article, and uh, this is what happened. A Tallahassee, pastor, Tallahassee Florida pastor uh, was over a woman's apartment, and apparently the man of the cloth ended up under the cloth uh, with her. And guess who came home at just the wrong time? Her husband came home early from work, only to find his wife in bed with the pastor. He wasn't real happy about that. Went to the other room and grabbed his handgun, burst into the bedroom, pointing it at the pastor, saying, I'm going to kill you. For some reason, the pastor wasn't excited about an immediate trip to heaven. So he ran from the apartment, buck naked, leaving everything behind. He hid behind a neighbor's fence, to which the neighbor looked in her backyard to see the naked pastor. She, not too sure what to do, called the police. After negotiations with the police, the husband eventually agreed to return the pastor's clothes and car keys. Now, this is where it gets interesting. You would think that would be a, a, a fatal mistake, a ministry-endering sin. But instead, the, the, the pastor went before his congregation that Sunday to give a message on God's forgiveness. Very timely, eh? And he said, well, you know, I have, this is a quote, he says, I have from God what I need, which is his forgiveness. And now I just need your forgiveness too. To which the congregation gave him a standing ovation. And he continues to serve as their pastor today. Now it gets even more interesting. The week that he was caught in his four-month-long infidelity is the week that his first book was released. You're never going to guess the title. The title is, I Need a Man, A Fresh Perspective on Manhood and Mentoring. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a little too fresh for me because it involves permissible adultery and adultery without consequences for a church leader. You know, whenever we talk about church leadership and those who have shamed the name of Christ in church leadership, let's be honest, that each of us has a long list of names that come to mind. Because we know many people who have done this. People that are in our own community, people that are in the communities surrounding us, and people that have recently been in the paper. Church leaders who have fallen into sin. You know, what should be the qualifications for church leaders in the first place? And why do so many church leaders fall and fail Jesus Christ? Well, those are some of the questions that we are going to answer this morning. You need to know that we are studying our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And we're doing this on both of our campuses. And what we've been learning in the book of 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy chapter 1 is about the centrality and importance of Jesus Christ. And the church is always about Jesus Christ. And we never take our eyes off Jesus Christ. 
We learned that 1 Timothy chapter 2 was how we honor Jesus as people of Christ's church. And that means we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. We're people of prayer. The second half of 1 Timothy chapter 2 talked about how we can dishonor Jesus Christ. We can dishonor Him by our lifestyle. And this morning as we put our finger in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is going to tell Timothy are one of the qualifications for leaders in the church. Now why does he focus on qualification for church leaders? If you go back to the very first week when we started to talk about this book, remember the, the situation. Timothy was pastoring the church in the city of Ephesus. And we had um, elders in this city who were sort of elders gone wild. We had the wrong people in church leadership. And they were leading this church astray. And Paul is telling Timothy what he needs to do to get this church back in line. And one of the most important things he has to do is get the right people in leadership. Because when you have the wrong people in leadership, it destroys the church and it destroys the name of Jesus Christ. So that's why he focuses on this right in the hinge chapter in the center. Now before we go into the details on church leadership, let me just give you a 5,000 foot overview about church leadership. And that's the church leadership in the scriptures. What you find as you finger your way through the New Testament is there's a variety of terms used for church leaders. You'll see the term elder used, the term overseer used, sometimes the term pastor is used, and some of your older translations will even use the term bishop in place of the term overseer. What you need to understand at this point is that those terms are used relatively interchangeably to talk about the um, plurality of top spiritual leaders in a church. By the way, it, uh, the spiritual leaders in the church, as I mentioned, are plural. It's a group of elders or a group of overseers, not singular. There's not a singular elder or a singular overseer. And they're the ones who focused on the spiritual health and spiritual life of the church. There's another term that is used, by the way, in Scripture for church leaders, and that's called deacons and deaconesses. And they are dealt with, what their qualifications for are in the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at the qualifications for deacons and deaconesses next week. But this week, we're going to look at the qualifications of elders and overseers, the top spiritual leaders of the church, and what should they be like. Now, as we get ready to dive into this text, the very first verse before Paul starts to give us to these qualifications, is just sort of an overview of the position of an overseer or the position of an elder. And he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I want to just point out three different pieces in this verse that will help us frame where we're going to go. The first thing is this. He says, If anyone desires the office of an overseer. And some of us may think, well, there, therefore, anyone could technically be in the office of an overseer or an elder. But what you don't see in the Greek here is it's not saying anyone, it's anyone in the masculine. 
is that, you know how if you studied French or Spanish, you have some words are masculine, some words are feminine? In the Greek here, the words anyone is in the masculine, and it continues that it says, he desires a noble task. This is telling us that those who are the elders or overseers need to be men in the church. Further reinforcement of this, by the way, is found in the fact that all of the qualifications we're about ready to look at in the subsequent verses are all also in the masculine ending. In addition, he's going to talk about that an overseer must be the husband of but one wife. He didn't say um, the, the married to only one spouse. He didn't use this in the generic. He was specifically said this is about men being married to only one woman, only one woman. And we're going to explain that more in a moment. He also goes on to say that an overseer, he specifically, must manage his household well. So you can see again and again, this is talking about the overseers of the church or the elders of the church must be men. I'm not going to camp on this issue. I know some of you may not even agree with me on this issue. But I just simply want to point out, I'm not writing the mail. I'm just reading the mail. That's what the scriptures say. So let me just want to make that point. The next thing I'd like to point out about this uh, verse are the two words here. Aspires to the office of an overseer. He desires a noble task. Let me talk about the difference between the word aspires and desires. The word aspire literally means to reach out for something. It's an external action. You are doing something to get something or to obtain something. And what Paul is saying here, if anyone wants to be a church leader, they should be taking steps of action towards becoming one. He's saying you don't just wake up one day after eating breakfast and having finished your cornflakes and go, you know what I just realized? I'm qualified to be an elder. It doesn't happen that way. You don't become an elder or a church leader by osmosis. And you just happen to wake up that way. You take steps towards becoming a church leader. You are to prepare yourself and train yourself. What this means is you go to church. What this means is you go to a Crosswinds University class where you can learn the Bible in more depth. You get involved in a, a life group. You start to read extra books about the scriptures and you study things. You get involved under an older pastor or an older elder and you begin to get mentored by them. Maybe you even go to school so you learn more about how to properly handle the word of truth and to lead. You take steps of action to prepare yourself someday to become a church leader. That's what he says. Now the word desires refers to the exact opposite. While aspires refers to taking external action, desires refers to the internal nature of a ch someone's heart. It means you desire to become a church leader. Simply that. Now why would someone desire to become a church leader? You do not desire to become a church leader because it's a position of power. You desire to become a, a church leader because it is a position of service. The idea, Paul says, is that God places 
in the hearts of some men the desire to serve him by serving the others in his church, by leading others in his church, not for power, but to sacrifice themselves. And they should be taking steps to develop themselves in leadership for that day when they become an overseer or an elder. Look what Paul or Peter says about this. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter is saying that those who are leaders in the church do not serve in the church because they have to, but because they want to, because God has placed a desire in their heart to serve Him by serving others. Because church leaders sacrifice much time, they sacrifice much energy, and usually they don't get much pay. So most elders don't get any pay at all. But you do it because God has placed that desire in your heart, and you've gone out of the way to prepare to be able to serve Him in that way. Now I just want to pause here and make a major and very important application point. I want to talk to the young men in this room. I want you to be honest. Has God placed in your heart a desire to serve Him by being a leader in this church or some other church today? Has God placed that desire in your heart? If God has placed that desire in your heart, you need to be taking steps to prepare yourself. Because here's the truth. I'm not going to be here forever. I have an expiration date. Every single other elder in this church also has an expiration date. We will all be gone, and you young men will be the ones who are here. And today you need to preparing, be preparing now to be able to serve wisely and well then. So here's my challenge to you. Young men, and I don't know if you are 14 years old or if you are 25 years old or 27 years old, if God has given you some kind of desire to serve Him in a position of leadership in His church, I want you to write down on the connection card, I want to become, I want to be mentored by a pastor. Write that down. Either myself or Pastor Stephen will follow up on that. We will do what we can to help mentor you and prepare you to be a successful leader in his church, Christ's church, someday. Because we should be always taking steps if that God has given you that desire in your heart. Now, let's move on to the qualities. What are the qualities that um, Paul gives us of a church leader? And I just have to apologize a little bit here. It's a long list. It just is what it is. So I don't like preaching lists, but we're going to preach the Scripture, so let's go ahead and dive right in. First quality, number one, a church leader must be above reproach. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This is talking about a church leader's reputation. See, a church leader is not just holding a position of leadership in the church, but the church leaders should be leading by providing a moral and spiritual example in the church. This doesn't mean a church leader is perfect. 
doesn't mean they're sinless, but it means there should be no obvious glaring errors or sins in the life or the lifestyle of a church leader. By the way, this means our Florida pastor will not qualify. Because there's not a single man in his church that will leave him alone with their wife for more than five minutes. Because he has an obvious spiritual character defect. In fact, Peter says the same thing. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but spiritual leaders should be examples to the flock. That spiritual leadership in the church, once again, is not primarily uh, about a position of leadership, but it's providing the example of leadership for others in the church. Second thing that we have to know about spiritual leadership. A church leader must be a one-woman man. In fact, the way it says it in the ESV could be a little misleading. It says the church leader must be the husband of one wife. And why this could be misleading is when it says the husband of one wife, some people will think this is referring to a quantitative issue rather than a qualitative issue. Some people think... This means that if you want to be a leader in the church, you could only have been married once in your life. And that is clearly in the Greek, not what it is saying. The Greek literally means you have to, reads, you have to be a one-woman man. It's referring to a heart issue. For instance, the Scriptures are clear that after the death of a spouse, you are free to remarry as long as you remarry in the Lord. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Also, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, Paul counsels younger widows to remarry after the death of a spouse and to have children. It's okay to remarry. In fact, even divorce doesn't always disqualify someone for a church leadership position. In fact, what we know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 32 through 39, that divorce is acceptable if your spouse is guilty of persistent adultery. Doesn't mean you should have to seek divorce, but it's an acceptable solution to persistent adultery. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, that if an unbelieving spouse insists on walking away from the relationship, that you are to let them go. And what Paul is saying, that if, and Jesus is saying, if there are some situations where divorce is allowable, that would mean remarriage is also allowable in those situations. And possibly even church leadership for that person in the future. Now that doesn't mean divorce is good. Matthew or Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce, period. You know, it's not a good deal. But it also doesn't necessarily always exclude someone from, from a church leadership position in their life if they've been divorced or had to remarry after the death of a spouse. This is very clearly, though, talking about the heart of men. If you are going to be a church leader, you must be a one-woman man. I like the way Job says this. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Here's my simple point, guys. Satan's favorite way and most effective way 
to disqualify elders and to disqualify pastors is to attack them in the area of their sexuality. So they are not one women men. From here on out, I could actually continue the rest of the sermon just giving you example after example in my 20 plus years of ministry of pastors and elders that have fallen sexually. Let me just give you a few to give you an idea of how prevalent this is. Uh, about two weeks ago, I found out the real reason why a really gifted pastor who was a friend of mine left the ministry eight years ago. Never told me. I found out sort of by mistake. Had an affair with an administrative assistant and left her pregnant. That ended his career. When I was a youth pastor, I had a kid start coming to my youth group. And as I got a chance to, to talk to him a little more, I discovered why he came from the church he usually attended, to our church. Turns out his sister uh, was having a sexual affair with the youth pastor. The youth pastor, by the way, was married and had six kids. <laughs> when his sister confessed to her mother about the affair that she was having with the youth pastor, the mother said, you can't be having an affair with him because I am. The guy was intimately involved with a mother and the daughter, plus married with six kids. I mean, I just wanted to like, you, know, you shouldn't be a violent guy, but I wanted to be real violent at that point. But this gives you an idea of how prevalent this kind of stuff is. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I was at a meeting called Team 500 for the Free Church. It's sort of an idea swap meet for pastors of churches about our size. About 30 of us get together for three days in a room, and we just sort of do an idea swap. But we always have this discussion. Who is going to be the empty chair? Don't let it be you. Usually at about the rate of about one per year, one of those pastors falls to sexual sin. Two years ago, it was a pastor who had always been in that room. It was a pastor in Detroit. Past year, it wasn't one of the men in our immediate room, but it was in a, a man who, who was a slightly larger church, involved in a slightly bigger um, camaraderie group, came home from his peer meeting two weeks later and committed suicide because it was about to reveal that he was having an affair with a woman in the church. I'm telling you, it's incredibly, incredibly prevalent. What this means is if you want to be a leader in the church, you have to be radically committed to protecting yourself in the area of your sexuality and being committed to your wife and your wife alone. This means there's no porn on your computer, no soft porn, no hard porn, nothing. You do not allow an inch of this kind of stuff into your life. You have no close relationships with any other women besides your wife. Satan will take you out because he knows that if he can take you out, he can do great damage to the church. You must be radically committed in this area. Let me just give you three um, quick words of advice for you to help you in this area, men. Here they are. Number one, don't take a second look. Don't ever take a second look. The first look just sort of happens. It's the second look where sin begins to enter in. You may be at the YMCA and you notice that lady in spandex across the room. 
you don't take a second look. You may be at the beach this summer, and all of a sudden she catches your eye. You don't turn back and take a second look. You may be on the boat, and the boat drives by, and the lady's wearing a bikini, and what do you want to do? You don't take a second look. You look someplace else. You bounce your eyes. You may be at the office, and you notice that a woman's eyes have connected with you. You don't allow your eyes to connect with her. Radical in this area, guys. Because the way it works is this. When you begin to take a second look, you begin to entertain the, your lusts. You begin to entertain your fantasies. And what you do is you slowly start to talk yourself closer and closer and closer into a relationship that's inappropriate. Some people have asked this question. Can men and women just be friends? And some ladies will say, well, sure. Men answer that question. Can men and women just be friends? Tell me the truth, men. Thank you. There's your answer. No. You keep a guard and a gate there. Number two. Read God's Word. It keeps us from sin. Psalm 119.11 tells us this. In fact, when you find yourself in God's Word, you will constantly find yourself convicted of sin. That's good. That's what God's Word should be doing. And God will chasten you in your relationships this way. Number three, one of the things you need to do is pour your affections into your wife. God gave us men testosterone. That's good. Get married and pour your affections onto your wife. Now, some men have told me this. Well, you know what? My wife is boring. There's no real passion. There's no real intimacy at home. And you know what I say? The reason your marriage is boring is not your wife's fault. It's your fault. Men, you are to be the pursuer. You are the one that is supposed to love her, give her affections, and put your energy into her. And when you put your energy into her, she will end up loving you back. She's a reflector. But if you're putting your energy at home in the kind of quantity and amount that it should be poured into your wife, you're not going to have a lot of energy to pour to anybody else. So pour your affections onto your wife. It'll help guard you in the area of sin. Number three, a church leader must possess self-discipline. And I lumped all three of these together because these have to do with the qualities of self-discipline. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded literally means wineless. Just so you know, alcohol was forbidden for priests that were on duty according to Leviticus chapter 10. Also, it was forbidden for kings and for rulers talks about that in Proverbs 31, verse 4, which I think is a really good idea because if you are in a position of leadership and authority, you really don't want to be having too much wine to drink. Think about this. Would you like President Trump, you know, getting a little sloshed in the evening when the guy walking behind him carries the nuclear launch codes in a briefcase? I don't think so. I'll give you an example uh, of why I personally have chosen not to drink at all. And that is because as a church leader, you need to know that you are always on call. There is no such thing as being off call. When my kids were young, I remember we were having a birthday party for one of my sons. And we're in the birthday party, we're getting ready to cut the cake, getting ready to open the presents, and my phone rings. I answer it. It's a teenage girl 
in our church, and she says, my mom just died. What are you going to do in that part? Well, hang out with the dead body for about an hour. I'll be there when I'm done opening presents and eating cake. I don't think so. What are you going to say? Well, I'll be over in about four hours. I need to sober up a bit. I've been on my own time drinking. You're on call. You've got to be able to go at a moment's notice. And you can have nothing that impairs your thoughts or your judgment. That's just part of what it means to be a church leader. Secondly, he says this, self-control. Self-control means a well-disciplined mind. Someone needs to be able to exercise self-restraint. You need to discipline yourself to be able to say no to things. You have to be able to order your life. You have to be able to order your priorities. Let me just be real straight with this. For instance, you need to be able to be well-disciplined when it comes to your time. If you are perpetually late for meetings, the problem is, is you don't have discipline over your time. And quite honestly, you're disqualifying yourself from a church leadership position, just to be honest. If you uh, are perpetually carrying a balance on your credit card that you cannot pay off, you do not have discipline over your spending. You are disqualifying yourself from the position of a church leader because you're not disciplining yourself in your spending. If you don't have discipline over your food life and you're constantly overeating and you're given to gluttony, you're disqualifying yourself from a church leadership position. I'm just being real honest. You have to be able to exercise discipline in your mind and exercise self-restraint. And then he says this, you need to be respectable. Well, self-discipline has to do with the inner world. Respectability has to do with how you order your outer world. It's a well-ordered outer life. It literally means the opposite of chaos. So if you go over someone's house and their house is a complete mess, they're disqualifying themselves for church leadership. If their yard all summer long has weeds that are over the knees, they're disqualifying themselves from church leadership because they cannot keep order in their world. Now, I know some of you are thinking, like, this is not fair, Pastor Kurt. I didn't come here to be told I need to be on a diet and I need to mow the lawn to be qualified for a church leader. But think about this. Paul is so practical. If you cannot bring order to your personal life and your home life, how can you be expected to bring order in the church life? That's all he's saying. So if you are trying to prepare to become an elder or a church leader, start by at home. Start by your inner world, and then start by your own life. Number four, a church leader must be hospitable. Now, when we hear the term hospitality, we automatically think what this is telling us is that a church leader has to have church people over their house for dinner. That's not what it means. A church leader having church people over their home for dinner is called fellowship. Hospitality literally means love of strangers. Having people that don't go to church over your home for dinner. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, that as Christians, all of us should be seeking to show hospitality. 
That means having people who are not normally part of your church family should be in the regular practice of inviting them over our homes for meals. Now, oftentimes when we think about leading people to Christ, what we think we want to do, let's invite them to church. That way Pastor Kurt can talk and like they'll learn about Jesus. That's, that's good. Invite people to church. But I need to challenge you a little bit. What this is saying is we don't just invite people to church. We invite people over our home. And ladies, you use the power of your kitchen. That's really what it is. We all know just the secular statistics on this that when a family sits down and has a meal together multiple times a week, isn't the family much healthier? Isn't that right? Because there's a connection that happens in the family over that mealtime. What Paul is saying is we take that family mealtime and we invite strangers, people who are not normally part of our church family, whether we run to them in the hallway because they're visiting church, or maybe we just know them from the community, we invite them over our house for a meal. And they begin to taste Jesus Christ through the fabric of our family. And they find Him attractive. And they, you talk in a way that is much more intimate and much more connected when you have a meal together. Don't you? So... Paul is talking here, ladies, about the incredible power of your kitchen to share Jesus. And church leaders must be people who are very good at hospitality, loving strangers, and bringing them over for meals. In fact, ladies, I know that as soon as we talk about this, this gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because when you have people over, what do you have to do with the house? Clean it, right? And you're probably going to make a really nice meal, right? You're going to like want to. You're not going to give them leftovers and microwave meals. You want to be famous for what you do, and it's hard work. I know it's hard work, but look what um, Peter says about this in First Peter chapter four, verse nine: Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Ladies, understand the power of your kitchen. Use it well. And have a good attitude as you do it. All right. So we know that a church leader must possess self-discipline. A church leader must be hospitable. Then it also says a church leader must be able to teach. And by the way, this is one of the qualities that sets the overseers and the elders apart from the deacons. That the overseer and elders must be apt to teach. They must be able to communicate the scriptures and communicate the faith. There's two elements to this, and some people miss that. The first element is content. Obviously, you need to know the Bible itself. Otherwise, you can't teach the Bible. But there's not just content when it becomes, comes to being apt to teach. It also has to do with um, communication. Are you somebody who can communicate God's Word effectively and in a way that is palatable to others who will listen? We all know of pastors and teachers who are incredibly boring. They bore you to death when they teach. And what Paul says is, you know, 
If you're not apt to teach, maybe that doesn't qualify you as an elder or church leader because you have to be apt to teach. Now, let me just pause and say this, by the way. If somebody is not naturally gifted in teaching, what they should do is not just work on learning the Word of God, but they should just go out and actually study how to teach the Word of God so they can communicate in an effective and palatable way. They may never become the next Billy Graham, but that's okay. Just learn how to teach God's Word. Number six, a church leader must not be a drunkard. Here's all I'm going to say. If your accountability partners have the names of Jack Daniels and Jose Suervo, you are not qualified for church leadership. Next. All right. A church leader must not be violent, but gentle. This word violent literally means given to blows. What this means is if you like to hit people just because you don't agree with them, you don't qualify as a church leader. So, but he says you need to be known as a person who is gentle. That means you have to be a person who is cool and calm under pressure. And you cannot let yourself become someone who gets worked up and hot-headed. And if you consistently become hot-headed and you don't have that under control, you are disqualifying yourself from the position of spiritual leadership. Now, let me just be honest. I didn't realize this when I went into the pastorate. There is a ton of pressure on pastors and elders and church leaders. A lot of pressure. You know, I get out of the pulpit and I've had everything criticized. I've had my socks criticized, my pants criticized, my shirt criticized, my hairstyle criticized, my children criticized, my wife criticized, and anything else possible has been criticized. You just have to learn to be calm and take it and learn from it. I remember one guy, I didn't tell this to the first service, but when I was a young pastor, uh, I was in a church that was actually the oldest evangelical free church in the denomination. And we were trying to change the church and make it a little more modern. We had brought it up to about 1920. And um, I thought we were making good progress. Well, an older gentleman, usually a nice guy, but he did not like change. It was like totally against change. And I remember I was... The service started, I was in the back, and he came into me, and he just started lighting into, me, lighting into me like full throttle, right in the hall. And so I'm sitting there trying to take it. He just kept, just letting me have it, all the way through the worship, the first songs, the offering, and finally I had to stop him. I'm like, I'm sorry, everybody is waiting for me to go preach. And so I'm walking up. You know, shaking like a leaf, I get up and say, open the Word of God, too, and we, we go from there. But that's what it's like. It's just part of the territory. You have to ask God to give you calmness, coolness, and patience, because there is a lot of tension and difficulty as a church leader. Number eight, a church leader must not be quarrelsome. What this means is you have to refuse to build camps. You have to, ref you have to be someone who is not easily offended. I know some men um, that every time you call them, their, their answer is, well, this person offended me. And that, those people offended me. And they weren't kind to me. They've always got a problem. And I'm like, you know, you're disqualifying yourself for church leadership. Because church leaders understand what are closed-fist issues and open-fist issues. 
And they can just work through those things. They don't make big deals over minor things. Quarrelsome people don't qualify. Number nine, a church leader must not be a lover of money. You do not go into the ministry to get rich. Just cross that off. You go into the ministry to hopefully survive. That's what it is. And if you are a, a, an elder or you're a leadership board member like in our church, guess what? We don't pay you. You do it because God has given you an inner desire to serve Him by sacrificing yourself for His people in the church. And you've gone out of the way to prepare to do that well. Incidentally, Joel Olstein doesn't have this verse in his Bible. Um, we do, so we're going to obey it. But he has it crossed out. Number 10, a church leader must manage his own family well. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Let me just give you an outside angle on this. The neat part about this verse, it assumes that most church leaders are married. Amen. Right, honey? Uh, I'm very happy that most church leaders are married. Incidentally, there has been a trend uh, since the early days of Christendom to think that if people are not married and if they're celibate, they're somehow more spiritual or more qualified for church leadership. And you see this in the Catholic Church even today. And we'll even see this in a little bit when we get into 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, where apparently some of these nutty elders in Ephesus were saying that people shouldn't marry. And Paul's like, no. Church leaders can be married. In fact, he says this, one of the best ways to examine someone to see if they're qualified to be a church leader is to see how they manage their household, how they manage their wife, their stuff, and their children. The deal is, if you can't manage your checkbook and your house is a dump, you're not going to be managing the church well. And he says this, that you should, the church leader should keep their children in check. It's not saying that a church leader's children are perfect. They're just kids like everybody else. But they are to be submissive. Let me explain what this means. You guys know these households. There are some households where the kids are in charge and the parents do all the bidding, right? They're disqualified to become church leaders. Mom and dad are in charge, and the kids do the following. That's the quality you look for in the household of a church leader. Titus gives very similar qualities in Titus chapter 1 about church leaders, but he expands on it a little bit. Let me read this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery. What Paul says to Titus is, you want to look and see if these potential church leaders have been able to lead their kids to Christ. If they haven't been able to lead their children to Christ, chances are they're not going to do a good job of being able to lead other people to Christ. So you look at their children. Next point. A church leader must not be a new Christian. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The idea is if you have a new Christian who quickly finds themselves in a place of leadership, they sort of get a big head about them. They think they're pretty important, like they're God's gift to humanity. And I like the way it says here, they become puffed up. That means they get filled with air or literally filled with smoke. You know how people are, they're, a hot, they're all blown up, but there's really no substance underneath it? That's what it's like. So you don't want new Christians in church leadership positions. And lastly is this. A church leader must be well thought of by outsiders, which is the same place we started. Respectability. So let me give you two applications out of this long laundry list of what qualifies someone to be a church leader. First of all is this. If you are a young man this morning, I want to ask you, has God begun to place in your heart the desire to serve Him in some form or capacity of church leadership in the future? If God has begun to place that desire in your heart, as elders and church leaders, we want to do what we can to help you take steps to be prepared to be a church leader in the future. I don't know um, when that will be. I don't know how old you are. But we want to make sure we can help disciple you and prepare you. Put down on your response card something to let myself or Pastor Stephen know that you have a desire to be prepared in that area. And we will move forward in trying to help you. Number two is this. Did you notice most of the qualifications for a church leader's life are really just the qualification of a healthy Christian's life? In some ways, while this is talking about men who would aspire to church leadership, in another way, this is talking to all of us. And as I went through these qualities of a church leader, didn't you find that the Holy Spirit was pricking you and touching you on some of those in your life that maybe God is saying that you should be working on? Maybe it was the idea of hospitality that all of a sudden you realized, you know, we really don't have anybody over our home. And if we do, it's just church folks. We need to expand the vision of our kitchen. Maybe for you it was gentleness. Because quite honestly, at home you're a hothead. And you realize that that's not God's vision. You should focus on gentleness and peace that you should bring to your home. For others of you, maybe it was the idea of self-discipline and the importance of ordering your personal life and ordering your home life. Knowing that if you can bring order to those areas, that then you begin to be qualified to bring order to other areas areas of the church itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these qualifications of church leaders, of overseers and elders. Each one of us has realized that there's areas in our life that we have been deficient on, and we come before you, Jesus Christ, asking that you would help us this week to pick one or two of these areas and develop a plan and in prayer, we would come before you and ask for the strength and the wisdom to produce change and maturity in our hearts and lives so we could bring more honor to the name of Christ rather than shame to the name of Christ, which is what fallen church leaders do. 
And Jesus, I also pray for the, the young men in this room that you have touched in the heart with maybe just a little tiny bit of desire that someday they want to do great spiritual good for you through the church. I pray that we as a church would be taking steps to develop them and help them to be mature in godly leaders someday in this church or wherever you may take them. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.